As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Eisenthal. Joe, I feel like 2020 has been such an unusual and crazy year with a lot of things going on that there's actually some pretty important news that hasn't gotten as much attention as it would normally. If it was any other year, I think a lot of people would be reading about this and talking about this, uh, at least in, in the sort of investment industry. Yeah, it's kind of like how, uh, you know, news you might like put out on a Friday and no one really notices it. It's like all of 2020 is like the Friday news dump because you could put there's so much <laughs> other stuff to pay attention to. The virus, obviously, the uh, economic shock and the election that no one really has had the bandwidth for anything else. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. So uh, the event that I'm talking about that I don't think has gotten as much attention as it normally would is basically a debt crisis in Africa. And this month, uh, let's see, we're recording in November. So this month, Zambia actually defaulted on some bonds, and it's the first uh, sort of COVID-related default by an African nation. And a lot of people expect there will be more, even though we've seen some countries, some creditors, the G20 agree a few efforts to try to help indebted countries in Africa. There's a G20 debt service suspension initiative. But even with that aid, people are expecting distress in Africa's debt market to get probably worse before it gets better. I, I I think you're right. Like if uh, a Zambian debt default would have been the kind of thing we're like, oh, let's do an episode on that much earlier. But in uh, 2020, yes, it it's certainly gotten uh, less attention than I think. It, it gets other, lost. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where I'm sure I even saw headlines on it and I meant to ask more questions in a meeting one day and meant to click on it and learn more. And I didn't. Because, again, I probably had like, you know, some question about what's going on with the presidential transition or something that uh, took over my mind for the day. You mean you weren't thinking purely of Zambia? Believe it or not. In a meeting in New York. So in the midst of all this debt distress in Africa, there's also a lot of attention being paid to China and its role in building up that excess debt, but also what China is going to do now that Africa is, you know, economically stressed, is China going to let up on some of those debt payments in, in the same way that maybe multilateral organizations or other creditors are thinking about doing? So uh, we're going to get into that side of the African debt crisis quite a bit as well. But more than that, we're going to talk about how that debt buildup actually happened. And we're going to do it in a slightly different way, we have someone um, who obviously comes from Africa, from Liberia, and who had an official role in the Liberian government. And a lot of that role involved, you know, being involved in infrastructure projects for which you would incur debt. You take out a loan so you could build a bridge or a road or a railway or something like that. And so we're going to get a, a different perspective on Africa's debt problem. Excellent. Really looking forward to this. Okay, great. So uh, 
Without further ado, then, I want to bring in our guest, Jude Moore. He's a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development. He previously served as Liberia's Minister for Public Works and was also Deputy Chief of Staff to the President. So, like I said, a lot of experience in a government position within Africa, and it's going to be fascinating to hear his perspective. Jude, thanks so much for coming on. Hi, morning, guys, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I remember the f- the first time I ever went to Africa, I-, I went to Mozambique back in 2010. And one of the things that really struck me and that I found quite weird at the time was if you were in Maputo, the, the capital, everything was Chinese. The cars were Chinese. The trucks were Chinese. The stadium was built by the Chinese. There were Chinese characters all over the place. It's really, really striking the extent to which China has become involved in the Africa market. Why has that happened? Yeah, it, yeah. And and if you had gone to say Ethiopia, if you'd gone to Addis, uh, you would have seen the same thing. And and across the continent, and to a large extent, especially in, in, even in Zambia, that you you spoke about, you would have seen the same thing. There's been an extensive growth in terms of Chinese presence and a deepening of Chinese relationship with African countries. A part of that, I guess, is historical. One is that um, you know at the turn of the century, when um, you know would worried about why. UK. Uh, China is entering the WTO, but and China also unveils its first going out strategy. And the only uncontested region in the world in which Chinese, because they weren't as powerful as they are now, could go was the region of the world in which you know most Western policy toward Africa at the time was filtered uh, through the lenses of uh, humanitarian assistance and development. Africa wasn't seen as a place to go and do business. And for China, it, it worked out uh, perfectly because there wasn't a pure competitor there. I mean, there were some European engagement, but it, it wasn't to the extent that the Chinese would do. The second thing was just the need that was on the continent and, and what China could provide. Um, so even up to today, Africa still lags every other region of the world in terms of the provision of, of infrastructure, mainly paved roads and, and power. More than 600 million people on the continent still lack access to electricity. And so China had this um, excess capacity in, in providing infrastructure and, and normally provide infrastructure at cost, right? So it, before the arrival of the Chinese, the infrastructure space in Africa had been dominated by European firms. We're talking about your your Bouygues, your Effage, the large uh, Vinci, the large uh, French, um, Spanish, and, and to a certain extent, it, extent uh, Italian firms. But the costs of, of infrastructure from those firms tended to be high. And the Chinese came and were able to, first Chinese firms were state-sponsored, uh, and so they were state-owned firms, and could therefore, they had access to capital that was much cheaper and could provide infrastructure uh, um, so at uh, cost that they were competitive in terms of cost. The second reason was simply because they, they brought money with them. In a lot of instances, there were African countries who couldn't afford um, to pay for this upfront, and the Chinese were willing to extend uh, loans to them. Uh, um, and so for, for a lot of African countries, which at the time didn't have access to international financial markets to issue sovereign bonds and stuff, uh, for whom development financing from the multilateral institutions was just not enough, uh, especially concessional financing. And and so with nowhere else to go, they were happy for a partner who seemed not to worry too much about um, public financial management, who seemed not to care about um, the quality of governance in terms of corruption and who said those things were internal and they had nothing to do with that. And so there was this uh, a confluence of interest between what China wanted to do at the time and what Africa's needs were. And so because of that, we saw uh, a huge ramp up in terms of uh, African debt. Now, the final thing I would say to that also was that it coincided with this huge buildup in terms of a boom for commodity exports. And most African economies were growing at, you know, you know seven to to nine percent. And, and, and China seemed to have an insatiable appetite for, for African commodities. And so it like everybody was invited to the party and the party went really well for a while. 
So lots of things came together in sort of an ideal manner for uh, both parties or for multiple parties. What years, just to help us frame the conversation, we talk about this boom and we talk about this buildup, this eventual debt buildup. What years are we talking about in terms of when this really got going and when this sort of really hit its uh, hit its transactional peak? Yeah, so I'd, I'd say it started in 2000 at the first FOCAC. So the FOCAC is the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. It, it's this um, is held every three years. When uh, and the first one, I think 43 African heads of state and governments arrived in China, and it's been held every three years. And this is when China says, over the next three years, we're going to invest, you know, um, five billion or 20 billion. It went up at, at the last two forecasts, the 2015 and the 2018 forecasts. China pledged to spend up to 60 billion dollars in Africa. So the ramp up starts maybe around 2006. In terms of the, the numbers begin to increase around then, but the, the Chinese arrival in this form that we're seeing begins around uh, 2000. And then the, the um, financial crisis of 2008 basically left China uh, unchallenged. Uh, I, mean, I think a lot of the global recovery was driven by um, the Chinese uh, uh, spending on, on capital projects. And and at the end of that, China was left with this excess capacity that had to go somewhere. I mean, I think a lot of that is what drove even the Belt and Road Initiative. But with that excess capacity, we saw an even significant ramp up of, of Chinese spending. So you go back and look at Zambia's uh, uh, debt profile in terms of the accumulation of debt in a place like Zambia. Well, most African countries were beneficiaries first of the debt um, debt waivers under HIPIC, right, and the Jubilee the, the uh, activity around waiving debt. And so come around 2010, 2011, a lot of African countries suddenly have significant space to borrow again. And, and so uh, uh, with China left um, with this excess capacity, we see this significant ramp up of, of Chinese lending for infrastructure on the continent. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So this is one thing I always wondered, but well, actually, okay, I have two questions. So first of all, could you maybe describe a little bit more what uh, what these Chinese infrastructure deals actually look like and how they work? So you had things operating under official state sanctioned banners like the Belt and Road Initiative, but you also had private Chinese companies who would come in and tender offers alongside European and American companies or companies from anywhere in the world. How, how did those actually work? And then secondly, if China was financing a lot of this infrastructure build, Africa is still enormously behind on infrastructure, obviously. Like, why didn't it make more of a difference? Why aren't there, you know, bridges and railway, railways and airports and things like that all over? Like everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think first, uh, that's a really good question. I think first it's just the baseline. Uh, it, I mean, we're coming from, you have to remember um, toward and between 1989 and say the year 2000, that the, the continent is ravaged by a number of crises, right? First, there are a significant amount of civil wars, the Liberian Civil War, the Sierra Leonean Civil War, um, the Rwandan genocide, uh, Mogadishu, even Mozambique we talked about. There's a significant amount of wars and a lot of uh, infrastructure is either not built or destroyed during these wars, 
right? And then, at, and because of those those wars, uh, we saw a lot of humanitarian um, crises, right? And and but at the same time, we had an AIDS pandemic that was um, wiping out a significant number of the population across Central and Southern Africa, and so a significant amount of money that was available went toward the health crisis, uh, went toward just basically meeting needs, and not a lot was done in terms of infrastructure. And so the baseline from which we come means that in in spite of all the ramp up we did, we only just scratched the surface. The African Development Bank now uh, puts the, the gap in terms of infrastructure finance into around up to $103 billion a year. So, so you can imagine how, how deep the hole was in terms of what was available. And the way it worked, you're right. Uh, there were like three um, nodes of Chinese engagement. There were your large uh, state-owned companies um, that were owned by the central government. Um, and then there were your provincial companies. And then finally, you had these like quasi-private uh, uh, companies. Each of them came with the promise of the backing of Chinese policy banks. So they were always promised that they could get you access to financing once the government, I mean, what they required was a, a sovereign guarantee. They needed the government to uh, back that loan. And if the government did, and because you have so many actors, it would seem to me, I, I, you know, I, I don't know that as much about how the Chinese system works on their side. But for example, if I went to the World Bank uh, so the Ministry of Public Works engaged the World Bank. Most of that engagement would happen through the Ministry of Finance. The World Bank would then look at Liberia's debt portfolio and be able to say, you can't afford this, right? On the Chinese side, it just seemed not to have worked like that. So you had multiple Chinese companies that are competing. So there's a, a, a provincial company, a construction company that is accessing finance somehow. It has a line of credit that it can extend uh, or is working through the local, the provincial branch of the Exim Bank. And then you have the large state-owned company. And it seemed as if there weren't some sort of a, a central node that processed all of it to be able to say, no, it looks like Zambia has taken a lot more debt than Zambia can afford. You see what I mean? Like that, that didn't seem to be, if there were, it was almost made Maybe it was ignored or, or it just didn't exist. Whatever the reason was, uh, a lot of countries, as um, a few countries, not a lot of them, like your, your Zambia's, your uh, say South Sudan and, and, and Angola, were allowed to ramp up significant amount of debt. Uh, and that was tied, to be honest, to uh, commodity exports that seemed to be going up and up and up. And so I would like to add, though, that beyond the just huge infrastructure deficit, there was another thing driving Africa's need to borrow from China to finance this. Everywhere else in the world, as a, a population has either stabilized or is declining, right? Except in Africa, where the population continues to grow, where uh, more than 50% of the population, I think, is uh, under 19 and because this, of this huge increase in the population, governments are under significant pressure to provide both, you know, hard physical infrastructure and social infrastructure for, for these. And so there are all of these. And then Africa's exports tend to be largely unprocessed natural resource uh, uh, products. And, and because of that, there's, we're so low down the, the, the value chain that what accrues to us as value for our exports is just not enough to be able to finance our infrastructure. And so because of that, like all of these pressures uh, on governments, and, and the final thing I would say to that is also, it seems counterintuitive, but it was like the more um, the more democratic a country became, the closer it came to China. Why? Because when we ran our elections, we you know promised people that we would build infrastructure because that was the largest need. And so when the elections ended, and we needed to deliver on the promises we made. China was one of the few who had both the appetite for our risk and the resources to be able to lend us money to build the infrastructure we needed. And so all of these, I guess, all of these uh, forces and, and, and factors sort of just created this perfect, uh, I don't want to call it a storm, <laughs> but just created a perfect circumstance um, for, for, for this Chinese lending to, to Africa and, uh, and, and Africa borrowing from, from China. So there was no entity, whether it's on the provincial or policy bank side in China or the uh, governments of the various African countries that were the recipients of this uh, 
loan money and infrastructure capacity, no one had an incentive to do any sort of meaningful uh, debt sustainability analysis. It sounds like that, doesn't it? It just seems it seemed that way. On our side in Liberia, we really didn't have the we didn't really have the option to do that uh, because you see, we we just come out of a war and almost five billion dollars of our debt had been waived. But that meant we had to enter an IMF program, which meant at the Ministry of Finance in Liberia, there was a person there from the IMF who reviewed our debt profile, and uh, and in Liberia we had something called the Debt Management Committee that reviewed every application for, for debt from, say, an, an agency or government ministry and measured that against our, our debt stock and, and this debt servicing, and we just come back to say, we just couldn't afford this. It doesn't seem that that kind of infrastructure and that kind of you know, institutional arrangement existed across uh, the continent. And in instances where it did, it just seemed like the incentives weren't aligned for people to actually give it the power to operate at its shoot. Then on the Chinese side, it, it just, um, you know, um, there didn't seem to be uh, a significant effort. It looks like that's changing now. Though. It started to change around the 2018 FOCAC when the Xi Jinping began talking about, you know, we're no longer going to finance, you know, vanity projects or, or political projects, they called them. I think um, something started to change about it. It might have been because of domestic reasons. It might have been China's own position in terms of how much capital it had to be able to expend overseas. Something began to change. But in those, you know, in the heyday of, of borrowing that has us in the crisis that we're in now in a number of African countries, I would say maybe like seven in which Chinese debt is actually a driver of debt distress, um, that that didn't seem to be on the Chinese side and some sort of coordination to, to be able to take. And the, the final thing I would say on that is that we know that China has been sort of like a reluctant multilateralist, that China was not a member of the Paris Club. And the Paris Club of rich countries had had their sustainability rules. And because China wasn't a part of it, it wasn't really subject to those rules. Mm. Reluctant multilateralist is a great way of putting it. Um, I want to I want to talk more about how China's um, approach might be changing, especially this summer during the debt crisis. But before we do, I mean, I think we have to talk a little bit more about the loan. So there is a perception that China's loans tend to be, or its financing tend to be unfair in some way, or they come with a lot of strings attached. And that, you know, China maybe doesn't necessarily care about debt sustainability because it's trying to, um, how do I put it? Like it's trying to get a hook into a particular country or into uh, a particular resource or a strategic port or something like that. So it's not necessarily worried about getting paid back. So how much is that reputation deserved in in your view? So I I think it was first, it was an Indian writer writing an op-ed in an Indian paper who coined the phrase debt trap diplomacy. And then the U.S. in its uh, great power competition with the with the Chinese simply ramp ramp that up, and the my understanding of the narrative of debt trap diplomacy is that um, the whole plan is for China to ensnare its um, its putative partners in this unhealthy relationship as a means of being able to take over flagship infrastructure like ports and airports and stuff like that. And the example that gets bandied about is uh, Hambantota. You know, in Indo- uh, is, uh, Sri Lanka. Yeah. In, in Africa. They, so there's been a lot of studies. Uh, the China Africa research initiative at, uh, at John, Johns Hopkins University has done a study on this and there's no real, there's no evidence for this. It gets repeated often, but there's no real evidence for this. The second thing I would say on this question is that about seven countries in Africa, seven or eight, the, the, the debt crisis they have currently, uh, the debt distress, China plays a role, right? So in terms of Africa's total debt stock, China is responsible for about um, about 20% of it. So it sort of seems like we, we've become so consumed with talking about the 20% and not focused on the 80%, right? A significant portion of the debt uh, is owed to domestic um, creditors and to private creditors. And then the rest of it is uh, the multilateral 
lending uh, agencies. And so I, it's, it's worked really well to the U.S.'s uh, advantage in, in terms of painting China as this irresponsible lender who's out to take over um, the infrastructure of the countries it supposedly uh, is, is working with. That, that is, it's, it hasn't really borne out in terms of the evidence that this is what the Chinese... What, uh, but the, the question is, I think the, the critique of Chinese lending at a scale and pace that was just completely sustainable, especially for, for economies who were dependent on commodity exports, knowing the fluctuations of commodity exports. I mean, I, I think COVID-19 simply ended up being an accelerant of a crisis that was coming anyway. Right. And, and so we just didn't expect it to be this shock, but it was coming anyway. And, and, and Zambia had always been there. I would also like to point out that Zambia is a bit different, right, from, from other countries in terms of how quickly the debt uh, ramped up in Zambia and how much debt it actually had and how dependent it is on a single export, um, uh, copper. I think we were fortunate enough that the, the picture out of Africa after the Zambian debt default is going to be mixed. So on Friday, uh, either Thursday or Friday, Cote d'Ivoire went to the market, becoming the first African country after, since COVID to issue euro bonds, and it was five times oversubscribed. So it appears that the market is, is being really nuanced and sophisticated about the risk that African countries uh, present. And there still seems to be some sort of appetite for, for African debt. And so I, I think uh, China as, as a factor in, in Africa, again, we're talking about 54 economies and China being a significant impact. Uh, uh, part of maybe seven or eight. And then if you take out Angola, China's influence drops in like significantly because a significant portion of Africa's debt to China is actually Angola's debt to China. And then of course you have your Kenya. That's changing because you know, at the last FOCAC, Kenya went with the hope of getting uh, more money for the second and final portion of the standard gauge rail from, you know, it's a, currently it comes from Mombasa to Nairobi. It's supposed to go further than that. And, and the Chinese played hardball and didn't. Um, because first, it, the, the current one is not able to pay its bills. It's, the debt is very difficult for them to service. In fact, there was a, a committee in the Kenyan parliament who suggested go back to the Chinese to say, look, we're in over our heads. We can't do this. Um, the DSSI you mentioned, Kenya initially uh, didn't want to participate because Kenya still wants to retain its access to markets. But Kenya is strongly reconsidering that decision at the moment. So I, um, I, I think uh, uh, to, to just paint China as the driver of debt, especially with you know nefarious intents, it's just the evidence just really, really doesn't bear that out. So Chinese debt is an important contributor to the total debt stock, but it's not the only story. I want to go back to something you said um, a little bit earlier on, and we were talking about this perfect storm of there being an opportunity, um, China looking at Africa and seeing there wasn't really any sort of other main entity there from a business standpoint. Most of the Western dollars came more from a foreign aid perspective than an investment perspective. Is there a strategic opportunity now or is it just never made any sense? I mean, if 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 the countries where China has been very active um, in lending are largely uh, commodity exporters, obviously China has this voracious demand for these uh, commodities. Do other uh, sort of Western players, whether it's the U.S. or countries in Europe, have much of a sort of strategic business reason to invest aggressively in Africa, or do they just not have the same uh, calculations that would uh, lead them there in the first place due to their sort of you know, different needs of their economies? Sure. And just quickly before I respond to that, I would just add that part of what drove you know China's investment in African resources was also this need to have access to the resources at source, right? Because China could always buy them on the international market. It right. could buy them from Glencore, right? But but the 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 certain mineral resources were considered strategic, and and, and they wanted Chinese companies controlling them, 
And so that that drove that. I think this is a question. I, I'm glad you you bring up this question about you know beyond China or is there a strategic reason for others to to be engaged with the continent now? So one of the things that we that we've seen is the rise of these continent sized economies, right? That dominate the global landscape now in terms of the political economy of the world. So you have the United States, you have the combined EU, you have your China, you have India, and, and they're dominant. And compared to Africa, where you have 54 fragmented, very small states, I mean, the largest economy in Africa is Nigeria, but Nigeria's GDP is still smaller than the Washington DC area, right? So it is, I mean, it might be large for Africa, but in terms of a global scale, it's, it's really not. I mean, it's just ha- it has a lot of people. And then up to 90% of Nigeria's uh, um, revenue come from oil exports. So Nigeria's large economy is, is still pretty fragile, especially because now we're going to a post-carbon economy. So what the African leaders, they understood their inherent weakness of acting as individual units. And so they decided to create something called the Africa Continental Free Trade Area, which would combine all of their markets into a single market and we'll just, and by doing that become a $3 trillion market. So now uh, it makes Africa attractive as a place to invest because initially, if you were going to invest in any country, you had to, and wanted to scale up across the continent, you had to, you know, deal with 54, if you wanted a presence in all countries, but 54 regulatory environments, that is just way too expensive. And, and, you know, the payout, it, the dividend doesn't seem to match the cost. But because now it's going to be a single market, um, it, it might be more attractive, right? And so I, I think with that change, it's really, really important that people begin to take a second look at Africa. The second thing is, you know, over the last uh, 10 months, um, the large economies, I mean, they've spent close to uh, is it 10 to $12 trillion propping up the economies against uh, the economic fallout of the, the coronavirus? It means that when the recovery does come for a long time, we're going to see very low or negative interest rates in the developed markets. And because of that, I think the risk profile or the risk appetite of investors and private money will change. And Africa pre- presents an opportunity, uh, especially, you know, for infrastructure, and, and the long-term returns on uh, uh, infrastructure. I, I just saw, it was in the Financial Times, that by the end of the summer, investors had uh, poured close to $17 trillion into negative yield bonds. I mean, that cannot continue indefinitely. And so I think Africa presents, um, you know, with, you know, five to seven percent uh, interest. I think Africa still presents an, an opportunity for, for investment. So there is uh, uh, that. The, the, the second thing is, you know, the State Department uh, two weeks ago or about maybe eight days ago released um, the policy planning department uh, bureau at the State Department released this report on on the, cha- the, the China challenge. And it lists uh, 10 things in terms of how the U.S. is going to organize itself to that China's conduct is the reason China poses a challenge in China's model of leadership. And, and one of the places where we've seen really growth uh, with setbacks sometimes yet, but in terms of the democratic space has been in Africa. And and I've argued elsewhere that the Chinese model of governance, its desirability or applicability is pretty limited in Africa. And so I can imagine where the democracies of the world, like the US and, and, and much of Europe, would see Africa as a place where there's some sort of shared community or values of sorts. And, and that itself is reason to, to, um, be able to. And the final thing I would say is like, you know, as I noted in, in my comments earlier, I mean, p- parts of Eastern Europe has been decimated because of the, the population question. And that's going to affect Western Europe too. And so the only place that will be vibrant with a young population that's working is going to be Africa. And so I think this is something the Chinese saw and were able to make a long-term bet on the continent um, 20 years ago. 
when no one saw Africa in a place where you could even think of investment. And today, you know, we're seeing that. So I, I think there, there, there are opportunities for growth, especially in the infrastructure space, especially in the agriculture and agro-processing space that, uh, one would expect Europe, Africa's neighbor, right, to to have an interest in in, in investing there, and and of course, uh, the United States to invest in there. What I do see, though, is that China is just continuing to deepen its hold. So the Chinese foreign minister has already promised that China will provide support to the Africa Continental Free Trade uh, Area. The Secretariat will provide money for training and. Chinese state media is already entertaining the idea of linking the African continental free trade area to the BRI and, and bringing Africa closer into China's sphere. So I think uh, that there is there are reasons, both economic and strategic, for um, um, actors other than China to pay attention to what's happening in Africa. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about what's been happening uh, this year and sort of over the summer. So the distress in African debt is well known, and we've seen the G20 react um, as I mentioned in the intro, but I think one of the sticking points or one of the discussion points has been the behavior of the Chinese, whether or not they would agree to some sort of standstill on on debt payments or basically act like other creditors, um, like the multilateral creditors. How how big of an issue is that? And, And do you see signs that China might be softening its stance on this front? It is a huge issue and we've heard encouraging things, but it's, it's, it's yet to be seen. So if you go back to the Zambia story, Zambia had gone to its creditors, the private uh, uh, creditors, and asked for a standstill, a deferral. They decided they were going to meet, uh, they put it off to November 13th, and then um, around they came back and said no. And, and so the Zamb- and then there were recriminations, right? So on the Zambian side, the Zambian finance minister said that the private creditors refused to sign an NDA. And the private creditors wanted to know what kind of arrangement uh, Zambia was having with China. Because the fear was we would defer the debt, we would defer payments, and then Zambia was simply going to pay the Chinese. So they wanted to see. But China, as I noted, is a reluctant uh, multilateralist, and China prefers doing these things on a bilateral basis. Unfortunately, this is not just one of those times, right? I mean, because of the the scale of the crisis and, and the, the number of actors, it is just not amenable to a bilateral 
discussion, but China insists on going um, the bilateral way. And so because of this, uh, the private creditors just felt that uh, there just wasn't enough information, especially about what China was doing, for, for them to make any decision on that. And so that remains an issue. The second thing was uh, China exim. Uh, this isn't really a huge problem in Africa, but it's a huge problem with the DSSI total. China is arguing that, say, China Development Bank and other policy banks are lending on a commercial basis. And so they ought to be treated the same way private creditors are being treated. That the only Chinese, only Chinese lender who might participate in this is probably your China Exim. Well, but China Development Bank is a huge player, not in Africa. In, in Africa, it lent money to Angola, maybe. And so China is, is just trying to draw a line between what is, you know, a national, say, a, a state creditor and what is a private creditor. And so because of this, China has not been as, as uh, you know, eager to participate in this process as one would like. The final thing I would say is that, uh, you know, after the last debt crisis, a certain, a, a most of the, the Western OECD Paris Club members have moved away from bilateral lending. So I think 72% of, of debt servicing over the next four years are to Chinese lenders. And so because of that, China is a dominant player in this new debt crisis, not just in Africa, but just generally. And, and China's hesitation to, to it, it, part of it is China has way more to lose. It's way more leveraged here, right? Than most of the, the um, G20. So we keep saying G20, but if 70%, 72% is going to China, are we, is there really a G20, right? In terms of the debt question, is this really China? However, the Saudis who chair uh, the G20 now said that they had agreed in principle on a framework to handle sovereign debt that will be useful going forward. And supposedly the Chinese, the Chinese are on board, on board with this. But again, I mean, in the past, China has, you know, said, uh, like they make these general comments that could be yes or no or maybe. <laughs> so we, we it's, it's yet to we're yet to see if China is as committed to this new framework or if China is going to be more active in 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 this uh, in this space. But it remains that China is such a dominant actor here, and that China's hesitation to to fully participate is a significant storyline in the debt crisis. So does this create a sort of I mean, it sounds like there was some hole in the existing sovereign debt law or some ambiguity, the situation that allowed this dispute about whether the lending should be characterized as private sector lending or official sector lending. What does a sort of updated version of sovereign debt law look like so that going forward, uh, there's more clarity on how these things are characterized? Yeah, it just seemed, you know, that after the first, um, well, sometime around 2012, 2013, that the IMF, um, would have, I, I think, look, I'm, I'm not even, I wasn't even finance minister in Liberia. Right? I just happened to sit within the presidency and then control a ministry that was pretty big so that every time there was an IMF mission in Liberia, they met with me as one of the largest spenders in terms of the government. And so everybody knew that this issue of sovereign debt, especially for countries that were just coming into the market, would be an issue. And for some reason, there was never sort of um, nothing created in terms of an international mechanism to be able to resolve this when it did happen. So this framework would be that. But I think the difficulty with, with any framework, of course, is going to be when, when, when Cote d'Ivoire uh, sells debt for a billion dollars or a billion euros, you know, the people buying that debt are, you know, pension funds, hedge funds, private creditors who, you know, have fiduciary responsibilities, responsibilities to their, their investors and the people whose money they're investing. So this isn't just countries. I mean, with countries, well, you know, the, the legislature and the executive can make a decision here because of the strange mix of creditors we have. 
it, it creates this uh, uh, difficulty in terms of how one arranges this. So in terms of what this looks like, I, it's, it's really unclear to me what what the what a new mechanism looks like uh, in, in, in to be able to handle this the, because this is going to happen as long as these frontier markets continue to have access to uh, international financial markets in terms of in terms of debt we're going to see this happen again it might be from shocks within the economy or external shocks but these are going to happen so how we restructure the international system so that this doesn't happen to be honest i i don't know i'm just one of the guys on the sideline who's saying you know we need to do this and when you ask me how i'd be like oh i don't know um so i think but i i'm, I'm confident that people who are way smarter than me are, are thinking about this um but Insofar as Africa is concerned, its investment, its infrastructure gap doesn't go away. Its weakness in terms of financing that infrastructure from its budget doesn't go away. And so I think um, this is just a pause in an, an inexorable march toward more debt. And, and, and I think it makes sense that this framework that the Saudi, we're waiting to see what the framework looks like. And so maybe we can have this conversation again when the framework comes out to see if it is adequate um, to be able to resolve these kinds of tensions when they arise in the future. Hmm. Jude, I think that's, that's probably a natural place to leave it. Um, but thank you so much. That was a really interesting conversation and really <laughs> appreciate your perspective. Listen, I am really, really happy you reached out and I'm glad to have uh, participated in this. Thank you. Yeah, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. So, Joe, I found that conversation very, very interesting and timely. And I feel I feel a little bit bad because I, I feel like this is a subject that we probably should have gotten to uh, much faster. But again, as we discussed, given everything that's happening in 2020, um, there's just lots going on. But I also thought Jude's point about how China's very active in Africa, obviously, but that even the sort of private sector deals, loans that were coming from companies or, you know, deals that were struck with with private companies were in some way or another, they end up being financed by the Chinese state. And if you have a private company competing with a state-funded entity, that cost is almost always uh, going to be uneven. And I think the state entity is almost always going to win out. And that was that was one reason for China's, um, I, I guess, advantage in African um, mm-hmm. financing that I hadn't considered before. Yeah, no, that was that was extremely interesting. And I hadn't either this sort of like straddling the line, I guess. And look, I mean, it fits even when we talk about uh, China domestically and this sort of uh, ambiguous nature of the banks and the degree to which they're private enterprises, but also um, but also serve policy purposes and policy, economic policy in China domestically, as we've discussed before, is often conducted very directly through the banks. And so I get I, I think it's interesting to talk about it from a sort of uh, external standpoint as kind of being the same thing. It's like this sort of unique Chinese um, financing approach. And this was the sort of the first time we've discussed it sort of outside of uh, China's borders. But fundamentally, it's mm. sort of it's the same thing in some way. Yeah. And Judah's point about how you know, we talk about China having extended a bunch of money to Africa, but it, of course, it's it's much more nuanced than that. And it's really seven countries that account for the bulk of that financing, and then one in particular, Angola. I think that's a point well taken, but I think the reason everyone's talking about China now or over the summer is because of how it's playing a part in these debt restructuring talks, right? And there there are even some people complaining that, you know, no other creditors are going to agree to a deal if they think that China is going to be the holdout. And so any money that, you know, African nations do have ends up getting diverted to China before the rest of the group. So it even if China sort of has a smaller role than many people think, it does have an outsized role in these particular debt negotiations. 
Yeah, no, that's uh, that's really well put. And no, I feel like that conversation um, it cleared up a lot of things for me. I'd say, and I think also, you know, it's uh, obviously that particular sort of debt buildup and boom, the sort of perfect storm that uh, occurred with uh, African commodity exporters, voracious demand for commodities from China, like that specific set of scenarios may not uh, be repeated imminently anywhere else. But I mean, obviously, China still has um, uh, ambitions in terms of expanding its trade and also uh, expanding uh, consumer destinations for its own exports of uh, finished goods. And so the sort of fundamental questions of how commodity uh, Chinese uh, investment works uh, and what makes sense for uh, other countries to accept, uh, that obviously isn't going away. Yeah. And I got to say, I do hope they finish that that railway in Kenya, because that would be very, very helpful. And I can speak from personal experience that when the railways aren't working or there is no railway uh, actually going along the highways uh, can often be a very, very stressful um, and extremely dangerous um, proposition. So I am looking forward to some infrastructure development in Africa. Once we can all travel. I hope hope you get to. I hope you get to. I don't see that in my uh, (laughs) in my uh, path anytime soon. But, you know, you're more of a globetrotter than me. And so for your sake, I hope you get to uh, experience that finished railway. sometime. You don't think I'm going to go on like a Kenyan railway in 2021? Unrealistic. Maybe 2022. I don't know. But I'm I'm sure you'll have a wonderful Instagram pictures of it regardless. Whenever. Ah, Thank you. All right. Well, on that note, uh, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest on Twitter, Jude Moore. He's at Jude Moore. Uh, Jude is spelled G-Y-U-D-E underscore Moore. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Down has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.